John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1164.LV2716, certificate number 41467. Single taxers, or is it single taxers? They're both taxers, and they cannot find a, a, a partner, a romantic partner. Hmm. Taxers is a word I haven't heard before. The movement is single tax, and in the manner of 19th century political movements, they just added ers. Single taxers. Although, are there other movements like that? Now I can't think. Sure. Women suffragers. Suffragers. Abolitioners. These all sound like words my sister would make up. Uh, 31st century. Truthers. 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 There we go. Thank you. I knew there was one. Yeah. 31st century listeners, have, if they're listening in order, they have probably been aware that we've been doing more than a typical number of listener-requested topics lately. Yeah, there, there are some even uh, futurelings of the present who are who have a little bit of a grievance about it. Oh, is that true? Yeah, because they want us to just explore our own minds and predilections. This is not clipping my creative wings. No. In fact, I kind of... I mean, the reason for the backlog lately is that our... Um, Patreon donors are not evenly distributed throughout the calendar year, so we just had a bunch of people whose um, pick-a-show privilege came up at once. Yeah. Um, hello, pick-a-show friends. Hello. I call you the pick-a-showers. Uh, my my uh, experience is that when they make suggestions, I usually take only the thinnest gossamer thread of their suggestion and make a show around a thing that I want to do. Isn't that true of you, too? Uh, sometimes it's, uh, you know, you think of a... a a different angle on it. Um, I enjoy the fact that um, it kind of broadens the idea of what omnibus is because, I mean, when Marissa suggested this show about 19th century political economist, Henry George, I thought, well, we've never had an omnibus on tax policy. Wait and, a minute. and there's probably a reason for that. I feel like three of my episodes have been on tax policy, but they're not. They're true? about commodities trading. Oh, that's true. Most of yours are about cornering the market <laughs> on uh, on a vegetable, I think, or a, or a chemical element. But I do feel like tax the, comes up. The John Roderick Cobalt shows. <laughs> the, the gold standard and, uh, and tax comes up. But you're right. We haven't done a real... Uh, you know, I think you're jumping ahead of my show on Thorstein Veblen. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a little Veblen-esque. But as I dug into the the, uh, the life of Henry George, I found out it was even though like we don't usually do omnibus on utopian tax schemes, um, this is actually a super omnibusy guy. It's a you and I talk about it. We just haven't done a show about weirdly. it. weirdly. Yeah, it's because it's a 19th century Ut- American utopian um, whose ideas are important, but have kind of been unjustly memory hold, you know? Uh-huh. So it's in the line of all these other, you know, weird communitarian slash cult slash forgotten guy shows we've done. Um, but Henry George is more relevant than ever. Um, we talked a little bit about some of this stuff in the Ma Bell breakup just a couple of weeks ago because of its, because of the, not tax, but the sort of Chicago school of 
economics and competition. Well, this is two straight weeks that Ottawa's listeners get to hear about our love for the Chicago school. Gaboom. Because there's nothing <laughs> you and I like better than to sit around and talk about how cool Milton Friedman is. I wish that people knew how true that was, except that we don't think he was cool. No, we're, we're Keynesians here at Omnibus. Yes. Let's, let's get real. We think, Milton Friedman's, we think Milton Friedman's a goober. But we're I not mean, gonna, with reservations, don't write me. <laughs> <we're> not, <laughs> unless you disagree, in which case, yeah, please don't email. In uh, just a few months ago, Mark Laurie, billionaire Mark Laurie, made the news not by deciding to go into space like hmm. most American billionaires Weird. of his generation, um, but actually by being concerned about what happens here on Earth. He was—I uh, had to look him up. He's uh, concerned or fake concerned. I think maybe real. Well, as like, how concerned can a billionaire be about anything? Yeah. Doesn't a billion dollars... I guess it increases your concerns that somehow someone might touch your precious, precious billion dollars. Right. It, it makes you a nervous Nelly about that. Or, I mean, if you have multiple billions, you want to keep that first billion. Oh, like Scrooge McDuck? You, yeah. have, it, you have it framed in your office? Yeah, you'll get, you'll get rid of the subsequent billions. That but... means you have to keep track of which monies are which. Mm-hmm. And if, you're, if, if, your guy, if your guy says, hey, we need to save, we need to sell off... You can be like, well, hold on. Is that in the first billion? Right. Because that all stays intact. Yeah. Keep the first billion. That's not for my... Give the rest away. And that's not for my social causes or for my family. I'm a libertarian. Um, yeah. I just need it to stay intact in my head for my mental health. I, I need it to stay intact, just like Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck's dime under <laughs> under glass. But, uh, but also, yeah, you can buy all the railroads you want and then keep the first billion. Mark Laurie is a Walmart billionaire, but not like a hereditary Walton one. He didn't marry a he didn't marry a comely Walton lass. He was like the head of Walmart e-commerce oh, for enough years that he that got he got rode in his stock uh, vested. Yeah, and he's now one of uh, America's tiny but vocal billionaire class. Um, it's not tiny anymore either. I keep, I keep hearing. That the so and so is a billionaire, and I'm like, who? I saw today that like 700. Well, to be fair, you're saying that about Beyonce. You're like, who? Who is that? I have my doubts about their billionaire status, but sure. <laughs> I saw today. I don't that, think Kanye is a billionaire. I saw today that. Is this right that there are six or seven hundred American billionaires? Does that sound right to you? I mean that that's what it feels like. I mean, we I don't count right. the Trumps because they're probably worth about six hundred thousand dollars. I'm not counting the fake billionaires. Um, but America's six to seven hundred billionaires have gained, I think, two trillion dollars in net worth during the pandemic, in which most people were losing their bartending hours. Um, so things are looking up. For if you were worried about billionaires, John, hmm. they seem to be doing all right this year. I was worried about them in the other sense. I was worried about were, them murdering me <laughs> for sport. Yeah, that they were building <laughs> steam tunnels under my house in order to shoot me with a crossbow. But we'll, we'll, let's hold off on our billionaire judgment. Omnibus famously likes to give billionaires the benefit of the doubt. That's true. We don't. Oh, well, that's why you don't tax the rich. That's, unless that's what this show's about. <laughs> it kind of is. Um, we should always say, that's why you can't tax the rich, comma, as Milton Friedman might say. Right, as Milton Friedman might say. Because <laughs> we like quoting the greats. <laughs> Mark Laurie's scheme is called telosa, from a Greek word, the Greek word telos meaning looking forward or, or to the future. Right. Telosa is a community that doesn't exist anywhere but in the feverish mind of Mark Laurie. Oh, he's, he's building a utopia. He's going to build a city here on Earth, not in space, not in the asteroids that Jeff or uh, or uh, Elon want to mine. Is it by any chance in upstate New York? Now, in the 19th century, crazy American utopias were in upstate New York. All that uh, Mark is concerned about is where real estate is cheap. So Tolosa will likely be located in the Midwest, in Appalachia. Appalachia, don't write letters. Right. Arizona, popular place for weird pyramid-based utopias. Arizona's getting to... Um, Arizona real estate market's getting crazy now. All the These people days. leaving, leaving the expensive Pacific cities so they can work from home from from, <laughs> right. from Scottsdale <laughs> to go to a place where there's less water. <laughs> yeah, I think this might be short <laughs> short like the Arizona and Nevada boom. But um, the thing about Telosa, you know, it'll be some in cities in in pictures in artists' representations. It's a gleaming city of the future of of, of uh, kooky kind of postmodern. Buildings of the Danish architect Bjarke Ingels mm-hmm. has been brought in. Uh, he's designed corporate headquarters for big tech companies like Apple and um, ooh, something else. And then I lost it. What did he design? 
I don't know, but you know, all these kind of oddly shaped in the trend of the oddly shaped skyscraper. Do they have uh, vines hanging down? Yeah, That's these, my favorite Scandinavian trend. Vertical gardens as far as the eye can yeah. see. Hydroponics farms on every floor. You'll be trying to get to your cubicle and you're like, do there have to be six hydroponic farms between the Xerox machine and the and the water cooler? I want to go there, is the popular phrase. But Wait a um, minute, now, so uh, Tolosa is present day? No. Okay. Tolosa is a, uh, is a, what a, what's the expression? A twinkle? In Mark Laurie's eye. Oh. But the twist of this city of the future, the secret sauce, is that in Telosa, anybody who wants to will be allowed to come and, and build a home, but they will never buy a parcel. Telosa, the land, will all belong in perpetuity to a kind of, uh, of trust, a, mm-hmm. com- a community endowment that owns the land. You would rent a parcel for periods of various lengths and you can do whatever you want then you can then you can build your house or your um uh wine bar or your gaming store or whatever you want to build in telosa um there are no codes maybe there's codes i mean it's it's utopia it's gonna have codes sure but basically you can do what you want with your land you just never own the land because the gimmick in telosa is that telosa owns the land of perpetuity and as you increase the value of your parcel with whatever development you do, um, those gains will be reflected by the community endowment, which will... So you can, uh, if you build a lighthouse, let's say you build a seven-sided lighthouse on your property... That would fit right in with their other weird da- Danish skyscrapers. Can you, you cannot sell the lighthouse? You then, it, if you decide to leave, it, you cede it back to Telosa? Yeah, well, I mean, somebody else would just have to rent that parcel now that has a lighthouse on it, whether they want one or not but you can't sell the improvement uh that's a good question you know the, yeah I, I don't i don't know if you could well ray crock owns the land under the mcdonald's right, right but you don't sell the land you sell the mcdonald's laurie calls this um scheme equitism uh okay the big the big bulbous skyscraper in the center of tolosa will be called equitism tower with its big funnel-shaped glass sides uh-huh. and um obviously it's a reaction to this the increasing what we've talked about the increasingly skewed wealth inequality in the west at the moment which is which was always which was always immoral let's going back to rockefeller let's not let's not make any bones about it but is now kind of alarming in a civilization destabilizing way um because what Telosa would do is, you know, with the increasing value that comes with the rising land value, it would use that to fund all the kinds of lavish public goods that a good utopia needs. Beautiful parks, you know, amazing transit, um, schooling and health care for all. But the um, value, if you can't, if the property isn't transferable on an open market, then there is no value. Or you can't, well, uh, rather, you cannot convert well, no. that value into money to build other things, can you? Well, I mean, a random parcel in Appalachia that's not in the middle of a humming city of tomorrow is worth very little. As it as the stuff around it becomes a humming city of tomorrow, that becomes very desirable. But only if you estate. can sell it. Right. Well, or rent it to new tenants. The rental the oh. rental value of the land goes up with the value of the land. And I this, see. And this is basically the scheme of a 19th century American political economist named Henry George, who appears to have... Um, sparked Mark Laurie's interest in what he calls equitism, but in the 19th century would have been called the single taxer movement. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it goes back to kind of George's core belief, which is that you could get rid of all of our crazy counterproductive Byzantine tax structure by just doing all of taxes this way. Flat tax. It's a flat tax, but it's a progressive flat tax. That's kind of the innovation here. I see. Because, you know, we associate flat tax with Steve Forbes-like weirdos who either want to make sure the rich pay as much as the poor, or <laughs> want to ba- basically just want to strang- you know, strangle all the benefits out of government by choking off the the coffers of the taxpayer. Right. Um, whereas here, uh, Henry George is a genuine 19th century American progressive on every issue who just thinks the tax code is awful and we could get rid of all of its inequities and weird regressive qualities if people just paid on the value of their the unimproved value of land and real estate and literally nothing else 
that replaces all tariffs. Uh, you know, he came from an era where tariffs were the source of American income, not income tax. It replaces all income taxes, all transaction taxes. Um, instead, it's just the unimproved value of land and nothing else. Henry George is an interesting character. Um, even though he's largely forgotten today, he was one of the biggest names of his time. Huh. He uh, grew up back east, but had no education past the age of 14 because he grew up in uh, relative poverty, uh, straightened circumstances. Back when it was correctly understood that education past the age of 14 is mostly unnecessary. <laughs> That's right. He was ahead of the curve. <laughs> so it's wasted. wasted well, he was, cl- he was clearly a gifted kid who would have had secondary education um, in his day or ours. It just wasn't in, in the, the table for somebody uh, in the table. That's the, my expression. In the table. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't in the table. The, the famous story. You've got a weird fam- table with drawers in it. Famous expression. And yeah. it's not in the table in for the him table. to, um, or on the cards. So he does what uh, a gifted kid back then who can't afford tuition does. He heads west. Yeah. Um, where the books run in, run wild in the streets. I think for a while he's like a, um, some kind of a prospector. He does consider gold in California. He does wind up in California where gold is um, on everybody's mind. I think he ends up not deciding to prospect, having missed the initial boom, and he becomes a typesetter and then gets into he becomes a newspaperman. So kind of the oh, he really went the, after the money, the Bret Hart, Mark Twain thing. Well, back then, I mean, in a booming city in a booming state, um, that actually was a path to success. Although, as we'll see, not for him. I think it started all out uh, on the high seas. I think he was some kind of a cabin boy or four topman or. Something on a sailing ship where you would need a small little guy in a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what he was doing at 14. Um, he ends up, uh, he could have married up a gifted kid like that, but instead he falls in love with a beautiful Australian orphan and elopes with her. And uh, they decide to have a shared life of poverty and stricture. Um, Were they religious? Uh, he was, uh, by the standards of his age, a terrible... Um, free thinker and atheist by the standards of our age, he would just be, you know, a regular Methodist. mainstream Methodist. He was basically a, he called himself a deistic humanitarian, right? Okay. He believed that God existed, but we couldn't count on him to intrude in our lives in weird and superstitious ways. That was for, that was for the past. And science has shown us that that is not the kind of God we worship in, in America in the 19th century. Right. Our God is chill. <laughs> our God is way too chill to do miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, so raised Episcopalian, but later adopted the, the religious language of 19th century progressivism. Um, he and his wife had a series of children, one of whom like later became, a, I think a United States congressman, but, um, being a newspaperman was, as you suggest, not a path to fame and fortune. After their second child was born, he was literally out in the street trying to figure out how to make a buck to feed the baby. And he decided he was just going to find the first well-dressed man he saw and if necessary, rob him. Oh. And luckily, uh, the first well-dressed man he saw listened to his sob story and gave him five bucks, thus preventing him from becoming a burglar. Yeah, a serial uh, highwayman, a bandit, and uh, derailing Tolosa, 21st century Tolosa, before it even got started. Um, but in 1868, after a decades of unprofitable work for a series of Bay Area startup newspapers, he wrote a pamphlet called What the Railroad Will Bring Us. Okay. Where he outlines kind of a different vision than the sunny view that most American, the most of the American West had about the railroad, where the, it was... The railroad being the internet of its day. The hot new thing. This is what's going to bring us fame and fortune and connection to the big cities. And, uh, you know, for the West, the railroad was the lifeblood. And very early, 1868, instead, Henry George is writing, this is going to enrich a small number of plutocrats who own railroads. The rest of you are screwed, and here's why. So he predicts massive... Um, inequalities. And the people who have already been able to afford land will get theirs and everybody else won't. And this pamphlet really catches on because uh-huh. a, an alarmed public is like, oh, shoot, what if this guy's right um, about this coming boom in inequality? And he did turn out to be right. And, you know, living in San Francisco in the 1860s and 1870s, much like living in San Francisco today, <laughs> it was a great venue for kind of watching this kind of scary inequality grow. Um, in 1871, he happens to be taking a horseback ride somewhere in the, I don't know, the hills of the East Bay or something. And, um, he starts a conversation with a guy driving a cart, you know, a team of mules or something says, Hey, say, uh, brother, what does land go for around here? I guess this, this was the, uh, 
Did you see the game last night of the right. of the of the 1870s? Well, you know, as you move to the suburbs, uh, that becomes the topic of conversation. <laughs> Do you have the same conversations yeah. with your neighbors now? Oh so, boy, prices really a lot of equity. I guess as a new homeowner, you're kind of, you're going to be at ground zero for a lot of the topics of uh, of uh, equitism here, um, because you know you now own real estate. Well, the funny thing about it, I think I've. I've talked to you about this before because, you know, you just, money just seems to come out of your faucet. It's literally falling out of my pockets as I sit here and it's super embarrassing. And it takes me a long time to set up before I come in. I know, it's weird. And I keep thinking you're going to drop some on your way out, but you always come back and pick up every nickel. So as the holiday season approaches, John, what is your approach to gift giving? Uh, well, my approach has always been wait until the very last minute and then frantically scramble to come up with gifts for people literally Christmas Eve, uh, but with the supply chain problems now, supply chain, man. you can't really do that. So I don't put it off. I've been looking at stuff wondering, I mean, how, do, how do I do this? If you, if you like me, like to give a gift that's personalized. I do. I do. I don't want just some, I hate the idea of just giving gift. everybody the same scented candle. Or I always find card. something that really is meaningful from the heart at 7:45 PM on December 24th. Well, let me recommend something that works universally, because we all poop. Yes, everybody poops. And yet can show your love and and conscientiousness toward your gift recipient. Okay. Which is a Hello Tushy Bidet. Oh, a Hello Tushy Bidet. I mean, everybody would want to find one of those in their stockings. It's good for the eco-friendly, because it saves paper. Right. It's good for the people who like wet bottoms. It's good for... (laughs) No, you can dry. It's good for people who like, for like the tech nerd that wants the new gadget. Cool. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it communicates luxury. It does. Yeah. And also it's personal. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about your bottom. Right. And here mm. you go. And it's, uh, it's kind of like, uh, it's also cute. It's kind of cute. It's called Hello Tushy. It's not, it's called, not called like X179 uh rear end cleaner no it's got a it's because you don't want something like that aimed at your lower at your nether regions it sounds like a a robot from star wars no you want hello tushy it's friendly it's like the robot from wally who i believe was named wally hello tushy just washes your bum yeah with a spray of fresh water and then you 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 don't need to worry about your wet bottoms and you can just pat dry yeah it attaches to your existing toilet installs in minutes and you are going to save money and Save the earth. You're going to hardly ever have to buy toilet paper again. This would be great for a roommate situation where one of the people never buys toilet paper. Yeah. You could just get a Hello Tushy. And then... Problem solved. And then you, you're you spraying your, your roommate all the time. Not just... <laughs> <laughs> Not just less of a paper problem, but uh, but now your roommate is cleaner too. I, I bet, and it's better for your plumbing, especially if you have a uh, a septic, septic system. tank. Yeah, mm-hmm. no more paper down there. So those are a ton of different kinds of people you could gift the gift of Hello Tushy too. So how do you go about uh, how do you go about giving them a Hello Tushy? Let me tell you, John. Give the gift of a clean bum to yourself or your loved ones this holiday season, and you will get 10% off and free shipping right now if you go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus. Remember to tag hellotushy at hellotushy on social media so hellotushy can see that you have a hellotushy and are happy. Yeah, you want them to celebrate your new hygienic lifestyle. Why not? Have fun with a brand. That's hellotushy.com slash omnibus for 10% off and Free shipping. But uh, my wealth as a as a musician uh, did not really come from music at all. It came I mean, from your comic book collection. It, did, it came from the comic book collection that my daughter has shredded. It came from your Beanie Babies. Uh, no, you know, I, I, I scrimped up enough money to make a down payment on a house in the 2000, you know, prior to the collapse in the 2005s. And, um, and I sold that house and bought another house. And both times... Uh, or and particularly this most recent time during a real estate boom, and I bought it just prior to a big upswing. So when I look at my own as a 53-year-old, when I look at my retirement, when I look at my uh, future, you know. It's all an accident of home buying. It really is. The only money really that I have is money that's equity in my home. You'd think it would be all the the productivity of your life's work, and instead it's an accident of 
one thing you bought when. Yeah, and the the you know the the connection to my work is that the down payment on the house sure. did come from music, but you know, relatively small amount of money. Uh, I mean, now it's much it's much more money to get a down payment on a house, but at the time it was it was an amount that kind of came from one happy uh, placement of a song. And I put it into a house, not because I was investing, but because I wanted a house, wanted and, a place to live. And do you watch that episode of the OC every day now? I'm just like, thank you so much for using my song at the end of your OC show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But, uh, but yeah, weird and weird to look at because I have a lot of peers, musician friends who didn't buy houses. Some of them even had more money in the moment than I did, which again is not much. But uh, they didn't put a down payment on a house when they were cheap in Seattle, and they don't have retirements. And this has turned into a big part of the American prosperity cult. It's nuts. You know, like, you're going to have to flip houses, you're going to have to get my list of 50 secrets for how to, you know, buy the worst house in the best neighborhood, all this kind of location, location, location stuff. But it's a kind of, you know, it's a... But it's, it's not wrong. It's analogous to the kind of land-rich, cash-poor aristocrats of the, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century England. I don't have any money, but I do have- You do the, have a great set of hunting dogs. I do have the hope that I'll <laughs> be able to sell the silver. No, I have the hope that at, at a certain point, that appreciation will enable me to not have to work in, as a Walmart greeter when I'm 90. So this is the exact same epiphany that strikes- Henry George on this horseback ride in 1871. He asks the guy, uh, say, what does land go around here? And, you know, this local, grizzled local kind of looks over and says, well, if you see those cows grazing on yon hill off in the distance, that's now $1,000 an acre. And Henry George just starts thinking, like, something's not right here. Some These are now the Berkeley Hills. Exactly. exactly. Like the, that's the Berkeley campus, yeah. <laughs> So some, yeah, so he's, he's thinking even, you know, in 1871, he's thinking this is a problem. He's a smart, far-seeing guy. Like someone happened to buy this land just as a matter of course, not through any actual, certainly not productivity and possibly not through any skill. They were just looking for a place to put their cows. Exactly. And because they happened to buy the hill next to a town that's booming instead of a hundred of their peers who bought a different hill. Um, they will become super, super rich and everyone else will not see a penny. And this is going to be a problem of modern life. He sees I hope this. this is a problem of my own life. <laughs> I, as long as you're the one guy, right? <laughs> if you are thinking of a place to move in the greater King County area, come to Normandy Park and drive up prices. So in 1879, um, Henry George writes his great book, Progress and Poverty, just kind of built around this idea that this, a good title. that this is going to be a fundamentally destabilizing problem for America, that a tiny group of people happen to buy a tiny bit of land and they're not making any more of it. And, you know, he's, he becomes a crusader on just about every progressive issue of the 19th century. He's super duper for the secret ballot at a time when that was uncommon in American voting. Um, he's for suffrage. He's for women's suffrage. Yeah. He's, Yay. um, Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, he says um, he says that if America has a bicameral legislature, you know, once the 19th Amendment passes, really the only fair way to do it would be to have a chamber for men and a chamber for women. Hmm. We're merely soldiers in petticoats. <laughs> yeah, but what would you do now? You'd have to have uh, you'd have to have non-gendered chambers of Congress. <laughs> this is your this is your angry old man. Yeah. Oh, oh, what are we? We're, we're, we're going to have a, a, a non-binary chamber. <laughs> You can write that into the Seattle Times. Um, what most of his lasting fame rests on is this idea in progress and poverty that we are not taxing most unearned wealth because we're not right. taxing the, the unimproved value of real estate. Instead, we're taxing people's actual productivity and letting just a, a, a small back then millionaire class slide. And his modest proposal is, what if instead there was just a single tax and it was just on the unimproved value of the land you own? You compute what the rental value of this land is, and that is taxed at 100%. And what? not the value of the land, but the rental value oh, of I the see. land, like, mm -hmm. you know, which I think turns out to be maybe, you know, 5% is a good kind of historical estimate for what you can 
Oh, I see. I see. So um, if you are not a landowner, you pay no tax? That is correct. And if you own enormous plots of land, you pay the you pay 100% of the calculated rental value of the land. That is correct. Okay. And uh, he thinks, and I think he's aware, you know, even though he's kind of a self-taught political economist, he's aware that this is an idea that's going places and maybe this is going to make his fortune. You know, this will get him a teaching position finally at a university. Is this um, compatible with Marxism? Well, that's what he finds out. It turns out three million copies of this book sell in America over the uh, subsequent decades, even though it's a 500-page economic text <laughs> of a kind that does not normally catch on. Uh-huh. Like this is the uh, the guy that just wrote the the new uh, Future of Capital or whatever that book is. You know, suddenly it it's right. a, it's an Oprah's Book Club selection, even though yeah he was just hoping. You well, know, and everybody it would, it reads, would get him a Nobel Prize. Everybody reads the introduction and they're like, oh, um, and it never gets read. It's like the Gulag Archipelago. The book is getting sold not to academics, obviously. You don't sell three million copies of to academics in the 1870s. It's being sold to carpenters and bricklayers. You know, the Knights of Labor are buying this up because this is extremely compatible with Marxism. You know, this is really saying there could be a fairer America. Right. Um, the landowners are not paying their fair share. This is the the boom of the labor movement. It's all, it's all happening. Yeah. And in fact, like that's where, you know, the, that's where the book sells best. You know, it, unions are, are adopt this as a possible political plank, political parties form around it. Um, in fact, utopian communities begin to form around it. To this day, there are, I think, still three towns in America that started out as a, the philosophy comes to the single tax. It becomes beep. This single taxer movement later becomes known as Georgism after Henry George. Mm. And today they've dropped a couple letters from it and it's often called geoism. Because geoism, sure. It's, it's a tax scam or tax scam. It's a tax scheme rising from the value of the land itself. Sure. Um, hence the geo. Was it competing against, uh, was this a time when there were Dozens of uh, alternative tax. Was that like an area of reform in the culture? I think so, because think about this. In his time, um, the American government got nearly all its revenue from tariffs on goods. And that was kind of a tricky area for progressives because union laborers loved tariffs on foreign goods. Right. Because it helped them sell and market their own wares. So, uh, you know, it kind of, there, this divide happened between the labor movement and uh, progressive economic ideology over the issue of tariffs. Yeah, that ha um, that's been happening lately in, uh, in, in progressive politics here in Seattle, where the, uh, you know, the kind of socialist city council is really against big developers but the union, the construction unions, are like, big developments are... That's all we need. Yeah, and so they've started, you know, the progressive politicians in the town have turned on the unions, and that is not the secret to progressivism. Um, to this day, uh, there's a couple of utopian communities. There's a free something in Freetown, New Jersey, or something like that, Arden, Delaware. Freedonia. These are basically places where when... It turned out, Amer spoilers, America did not adopt a single tax in the late 19th century. Mm. When it became clear that was not happening, they kind of, um, these are towns that decided to just found themselves kind of doing Georgism as a glorified HOA, basically. Like Tolosa, you know, you can buy in, but we own the land and, you know, we use the proceeds from the land value to fund schools and parks and sewers and so forth. Um, and so it was a case where they needed to buy vast tracts of land to begin with some oh they just yeah i mean they just started a kick the cows off somebody's farm yeah became yeah. a township in in the mid-atlantic states somewhere um but this was big news in the 19th century you know this was a this was a noisy movement there uh, in 1895 a host of single taxers descended on the state of delaware in hopes of propelling a third georgist party to victory and control over the state government and legislature. It's still called the Delaware invasion of 1895. So every street corner, you had a bunch of, you know, guys in army looking uniforms, banging on drums and hanging uh, handing out um, leaflets and singing single tax or songs with lyrics like get the landlords off your backs with our little single tax. And there's lots of fun ahead for Delaware, which is, you know, willy, 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 willy. Fun in Delaware not being two words you often hear in song lyrics together. Um, 
because the advantages of this kind of scheme, I mean, the song lyrics kind of point out that, you know, no, if there's a class of American that nobody likes, it's the landlord. Yeah. And that there's some reasons for that. You know, it, it's, it does seem inherently unfair that they're getting all this passive income just because they bought the right building at the right time. Um, and, you know, that's one of the main val- advantages of George's scheme is that it seems, it seems more fair, you know, that, that a lot of these landlords just accrued the value to their properties based on, you know, as Paul Krugman has written, luck, um, or as... Um, accident of birth. Right. Or as Joseph Stiglitz has written, just kind of the accident of, uh, of taking advantage of other public goods. You know, the, the city decided to put a road or a trolley line or a sewer someplace, and suddenly that doubled the value of somebody's land and not somebody else's, and they are now free riders off the, off the municipal teat, basically. Let alone... Mineral rights, timber rights, oil rights that all, you know, maybe or maybe not were known at the time of sale. And think about all the, you know, the land that was pennies on the dollar in Oklahoma. And then, and at the time of the frontier, this was, um, you know, kind of the American understanding was, you know, this is great for the, it was a populist understanding. This is great for the common man, you know, you know, a farm, no matter where you started, a farm for you here on the plains of whatever, in the woods of Minnesota or whatever it is. And uh, George was apparently the first to see what turned out to be the dark side of just creating a public asset like that out of nothing at an artificially low cost. Um, but there's other advantages to the single tax on that. For one thing, it's incredibly, you mentioned flat, the flat tax movements. It's incredibly efficient to assess. We've got a 2,600-page tax code in America by necessity, you know, because we assess taxes a lot of different ways and we've got a lot of smart people looking for loopholes. Mm-hmm. And so you wind up with this insane Byzantine tax code. Well, what if it was just as simple as here's what we've decided your land is worth, period. Um, There'd have to be an army of assessors, right? Or, or but there estimators. Is anywhere, right. anywhere property tax is assessed, that's already a thing we have. Right, of course. Um, it becomes so much more efficient to assess an audit than any other way of collecting taxes. And that's money that goes straight into government coffers instead of, you know, like a toll road that where the city ends up having to pay half of the revenues to the company that administers the toll mechanism. It's really interesting because the it, it feels to me like the success of something like this is, uh, like the populist success of it, is predicated on the line between property owners and property renters being just, tilted toward you know it can't just be is it a major is it a is it a, a true majority but it has to be a kind of super majority of people being renters rather than owners otherwise you're you're doing that thing where it treads into the american dream and all these people that are renters still aspire to be owners and and feel or in the owners of course right. like dress it up with uh, all this impingement on their freedom but so how does this play out? Well, as you know, America did not adopt a single flat tax. Seems wrong. Um, but, you know, p- economists love it because um, so many of the other kinds of taxes we assess have these kind of external side effects of dampening the very productivity they are taxing because, I mean, it's, it's one of the stupid small government comp- libertarian complaints about taxation is that, well, I'll, I'll just make less money. Yeah. And that's not how taxation works, but... Um, but there is kind of a disincentive to a certain kind of for a certain kind of work or investment or productivity if you know that, well, you know, this will just land me in a larger tax liability or higher you know, tax bracket. The conventional wisdom, again, not to make uh, not to make the Seattle City Council the um, the my walk across Europe of the, this episode, the microcosm <laughs> of the world economy. <laughs> but uh, there, you know, there was an attempt to create a lot of public housing by the Seattle city council. And the way they tried to do it was to, um, to insist that if you, if you wanted a permit to build a 15 story building, you had to, you had to uh, devote or earmark a certain number of those apartments to public housing or to low income income housing. housing. And if you didn't do that, then you, you could only build a five story building and, a lot of the developers were like, then I'll only build a five-story building. And now Seattle is full of (laughs) five-story buildings. We have less density than we could have because, yeah, because of basically a weird side effect of a kind of a tax equivalent thing. 
and not uh, to side with the libertarians because I don't. But it, I mean, but it's a true it's a true feature of tax policy that you know if you tell a, a business owner, hey, um, you know this this behavior gets you taxed, the business owner will immediately start thinking, well, where's the loophole where I can do less of that productivity thing that is getting me taxed? And you just can't do that with flat land value. Um, they're not making any more land, and those people are stuck with it. Right. And then the, just the th- fact that you could use it to replace other lousy taxes that people hate. I mean, I wonder if that gets around some of your some of your populist objection, which is that sure, you know, you you own a little farm, but guess what? You're paying exactly as much for your farm as that factory owner is for paying uh, on his more you know productive parcel, and as a result, income and sales tax are going away. You know, that might be appealing. Yeah, you can see you can see it, but like a lot of collectivist projects, it really depends on people thinking through it to one or two degrees. And most people don't, right? They they have an emotional reaction to an idea and they don't think it through and they don't process well, they don't use fairness as a, as a bi-directional metric fairness is they only see it as is it fair to me fairness for me yeah and and they don't think of fairness as a as like a condition which is you know that's just endemically true of i mean it's it's really true of any kind of government largesse or benefit today you know you can be as conservative small government as you want but you will mentally leave aside your own farm subsidy or, or you know, right. your social security or disability payments. The thing that benefits you, of course, is, is completely earned on merit. It's, I noticed it's the things that benefit others that seem a little suspect. Yeah. Last week when you showed up to the show with a giant chocolate chip cookie uh, that you'd gotten for free from a cafe because they were Ken Jennings fans. And I was like, where's my cookie? And you were like, oh, didn't get you one. And I was like, well, that's a big cookie you've got. And you were like, yeah, sorry. It was all one cookie. What and then, can you do? And then you you proceeded to break it into shareable sized pieces and eat it in front of me while I was like, "You could give me that large it w- cookie." It was all one circle. If it had been two smaller circles of the same surface area, well, of course I would have given you some. But this was clearly one cookie. Well, two smaller circles would be two cookies. This is gonna this is gonna put salt in your wounds, but um, I actually uh, Mindy made some M M&M and M cookies last weekend, and I said, "Oh, I'll bring some to John." And then, like yesterday, she gave them to all the neighbors, and they they were gone. So once again, land rich, cookie poor. <laughs> John, I know some portion of our futureling audience is a business owner of some kind. I have to believe that in the future, all sentient beings will be entrepreneurs. There will be five billion life forms, intelligent life forms on earth, each of whom owns one small business. Right. It will become very hard to name your business because all the names are taken. It will be hard, except it, uh, the, in the future they will speak a tonal language. And so you can have the same name, just just differently pitched. So speaking to an audience of either business owners or people with a business idea, no matter how big, no matter how small, we would like to recommend to you the services of Shopify. Shopify is a tool that allows you to connect with your customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day in a ton of ways. Yeah, it's uh, as speaking as a small business owner, I know you've been uh, you're, you're a sole proprietor of your enormous my media empire. Media empire. Uh, it's tough to to get all your ducks in a row. You're selling stuff. You're charging people stuff. You're marketing for stuff. You're you know all that in a in a larger company. Each one of those right. tasks has someone that's as in charge department. of it, or yeah, whole whole and team. You, and you're competing with companies that do that. What you wanted, what you wish you would have, is some kind of suite of products that would let you do all this stuff. Accept all major payment methods. Integrate with any kind of third party app you wanted, whether that's accounting or chatbots. Handle all your social media. Synchronize different kinds of sales. Um, Shopify offers. All that. And we are here to offer you a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features by going to shopify.com slash omnibus. That's right, John. We're bringing something to the table, too. We have this amazing offer. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash omnibus right now. Shopify instantly lets you accept all major payment methods and has thousands, and that's from customers, not just to buy their product. 
and has thousands of integrations and third-party apps from on-demand printing to accounting to advanced chatbots and beyond. Shopify powers over 1.7 million businesses. A new entrepreneur discovers the wonders of the Shopify suite every 28 seconds. That's shopify.com slash omnibus for your 14-day free trial. So in the 19th century, this is uh, there's some pushback to this from the moneyed class that you might expect. And, and none of the third parties or political platforms built around Georgism ever takes off. Um, although he becomes increasingly a prominent and even heroic figure. He runs for political office himself. He runs for the mayor of uh, New York City in the 1880s. And finishes, oh, he moved back east. Finishes, yeah, finishes ahead of Teddy Roosevelt. In fact, huh. he finishes ahead of the Republican candidate, but behind the Democrat Tammany Hall machine guy, and it's probably fixed, but, you know, he does not become the mayor of New York City, which would have really changed rent control in the city. <laughs> do you think that, because the thing is, you can't do it, you can't create this utopia after the fact, can you? Collective ownership of New York City, it wouldn't be possible. So that's that's what the objections are. Um the transition is very difficult. How do you handle a transition to a Georgist state without, um, I mean, because the idea is, yeah, you're going to be disadvantaging the landlords for some of these unearned advantages that they've had. If we all agree that this is inequitable, yeah, somebody's going to have to pay the piper for all the, for the free ride they've gotten until now. But, I mean, that's a deal killer for a lot of influential people. If there are two lots in New York City, one of them has a skyscraper built on it and one of them is a parking lot, is the rental income that would be charged, the rental income of- It's hypothetical. So it's the same income. It would be the potential income and one landowner would be making millions from renting his skyscraper and the other would be yes. making millions from parking lots because <laughs> right. we know their their money- But that's actually held up today. Now that Georgism is kind of coming back around, that's, that's held up today as a- advantage of the scheme is it encourages development and density in places where the free market would support such a thing. Right. Um, So rents might actually fall. But so much for parks. (laughs) Well, (laughs) so much for people giving their, (laughs) their land to the museum. The Telosa like state that has been uh, enriched by the, the community endowment of, um, of a Georgia's tax can then, can then set up its own public goods. You know, then it's, you know, Taxes and transit, you know, parks and transit and schools are also well funded. That that no one complains about, um, you know, all the high rises that are going up because people are getting the maximum. Because people are this seems so, such an efficient tax scheme, and people are getting the maximal amount out of it. It has been praised by Milton Friedman huh. um, after uh, George's death, which, by the way, was a series of strokes suffered in his. Um, in his 60s, in his 50s and 60s. Uh, That's a pity. Which, yeah, he, he ran again for mayor of New York City and his campaign was ended by his death in 1897. Mm. Um, and by the way, a funeral that dwarfed any other funeral that had ever been held in New York City at the time because he's such a hero for his futuristic ideals of America. Whoa. Um, bigger than Abraham Lincoln's, you know, whatever whatever the... Although the they, didn't carry, they didn't carry George's body across the country on a train. They didn't. But in New York City, the commemoration was bigger than for Lincoln's funeral in 1865. Wow. Uh, his body was laid to rest at Brooklyn, or was, you know, was, uh, what, uh, laid in state in the Brooklyn City Hall. Wait, is he buried in Grant's tomb? <laughs> He's also buried in Grant's tomb. So just, you know, un- unprecedented crowds, uh, you know, filing by Brooklyn City Hall to see the great man. Um and after his death, you know, because he was already such a progressive celebrity, and after his death, that reputation only grew. If you name somebody of that era, Leo, Leo Tolstoy, Jane Addams, Helen Keller, all the way up to the 20th century, FDR, you know, praising him as just just the light of what an American progressive thinker should be on economic issues. Um, Einstein quoting his ideas, Martin Luther King quoting him favorably, you know, because it all got filtered through the New Deal and became kind of an influence on Rooseveltian um, progressive democracy, uh, you know, it kind of filtered through to, to 20th century economic thinkers. But as I say, even these Chicago school guys are like, hey, you know, it's an efficient flat tax that rationally maximizes the value of, uh, of particularly urban settings in a way that our current system does not. It seems like one that there are ways that it could be 
that that it could influence, yeah, or not not game. Oh, I, I was wondering like, if you were already trying to find loopholes. No, but it, but the opposite. You know, it does seem like like a lot of utopian tax policy. It's all or nothing. You either do it all the way, yeah, or you know, it's like is it compatible with Marxism? Marxism, you either do it all the way, or or you don't. There's no like Other, half. Otherwise, you get this Biden era chipping around the edges of well. There's a child tax credit, but yeah, right. you have to own two coal mines, and you know if you're in the top twenty percent of earners, you're not eligible. And- but it does seem like you could do this at a municipal level, like any city almost could um, could implement it. It wouldn't have to be universally true. But you could you could use it to replace municipal taxes. Yeah, I mean we have we have issues here in Seattle again uh, around property taxes and. And well, the, our ability to tax in order to build public works, and there's you know constant proposals that the rich need to pay, you know, a kind of wealth tax that that is a, some percentage over to compensate for their you know enormous well to compensate for the fact that they um, they do exploit the the public. Uh, you know they they exploit public works. Yeah, they are they are um, thriving on a um, a booming Seattle that they are not wholly responsible for with public goods they did not deign to pay for. Yeah, exactly. The roads and the and the the uh, the public transit that are you know like disproportionately servicing Microsoft or uh, or Amazon, and that, that, and that those that, that those projects those public works are actually like subsidies of these companies. Yeah. So I don't understand why. There are only three little towns in New Jersey. Those are not the only American cities that have experimented with this, okay. actually. Um, at some point in the early 20th century, Pennsylvania passed um, a state-level law allowing cities to kind of double-track single taxing. Like they could they could uh, levy one of these unimproved land value taxes and at the same time you know, they could halfway it, you know, which is not compatible with Marxism. <laughs> but that ends up being a which is less, right? Yeah, and it also ends up being the kind of thing where, you know, you see two revenue sources, so you end up kind of gouging with both of them, and it does not have any of the advantages of either. Um, but because Pennsylvania has done that, um, they to this day, I think Pittsburgh has a kind of a, a, a two, a double, a parallel structure. Mm-hmm. Um, from 2011 to 2016, the city of Altoona, Pennsylvania, tried a Georgist-only municipal tax oh just now and i think it's the only time it has ever been tried on that level in america and what happened um altoona became a paradise you'd think people found it complicated the city council didn't like having to defend the objections to it It, i found altoona to be fairly complicated just getting around i don't know if i've ever been anyway even though on paper this should be the simplest and most efficient thing the city council found it a huge headache and it was very easy to i guess run on opposition to it and it went away five years later. So one of the objections today to Georgism or Geoism, um, not just the difficulty of the transition for existing landlords, not just the fact that it's, but also, and the fact that it's never been tried. So there's no proof of how it would work. You know, it would be an experiment no matter where you did it. There's also the fact that the math doesn't really back of the envelope pencil out. Um, if you consider that the, U.S. government estimates are correct, and the total land rental, the total land value, the total real estate value of all American land, unimproved, is twenty-three trillion dollars, which seems to be about right. And if you consider that the rental value of that is likely to be about five percent, um, and if you tax that at one hundred percent, as Henry George proposed, you get about one point two trillion a year, which, as you and I know, is not the U.S. budget. It's like a half or a third of the federal budget, let alone the stuff that state and county and city and town taxes pay for. Right. So you just would not get there revenue-wise on 100% of rental tax. And so the question becomes, you know, what would the percentages have to be? And is it just so confiscatory at that point that it's not equitable or politically sustainable? Well, the massive transition that the United States and the, you know, and the industrial West has made in recent years is away from land as the primary like holder of wealth. And now it's all capital, capital begetting capital. And yet you and I have seen just by the virtue of having owned houses in a boom city, that that is the 
it is the only kind of capital they're not making more of. You know, that location, location, location still does matter. It does. And, you know, but it's a, so, and that's what makes it a populist appeal, right? That it's, um, that it's hard to live in San Francisco and people are mad. But in fact, most of the, most of the untaxed wealth is held in stocks and bonds. That's true. Yeah. So I think that's why you get a shortfall that Henry George would never have predicted. You know, that's, so you have to do the you have to do a, t- a double track. You do the you do the land tax, and then you also just take fifty percent of all the money above a billion dollars. Yeah, it's the, it's the unimproved value of your portfolio or something. Um, but you're right when you mention the Barry. I mean, that's the kind of place where Georgist tax principles are really being mooted quite seriously and being considered by smart people. The idea being that you know it would encourage development and therefore bring rents down. Um, you know, as a, you know, we have all these in the Bay Area, you have all these companies setting up outside yeah. city limits in order to take advantage of these, um, suburban cities that would welcome them while also taking advantage of the great public good that is San Francisco. And the fact that you have workers who want to live there and, um, well-funded, you know, whatever is well-funded in San Francisco. Um, sex clubs. <laughs> well, I mean, you've got all the, I mean, I know like I wouldn't hold up BART as an example of, or Muni as an example of great infrastructure, but, um, you have city level stuff and yet the business yeah. located outside of town and not paying a dime. Yeah. I, I've always felt like at least in recent years that that's pretty tenuous, that desire that young software designers have to commute to Palo Alto, but live in San Francisco for the, for the fun dance clubs or whatever that could all sort of the fashion could just it seems so imu- didn't didn't it seem so immutable 15 years ago it when did. we were like yeah the suburban flight was just the weird that was the weird anomaly now we're all going For, back. forever everyone's going to want to live in south lake union seattle yeah you know? we're going to ride or, unicycles to work and and in fact that turned out to be a temporary blip caused by another unforeseeable thing which is work from home and Everybody fleeing to Billings and Henderson, Nevada. Yeah, right. The 24-year-olds now all want to make bony Vare records up in the, the mountains in Michigan. There are no mountains in Michigan. But it really does tap into this thing we all kind of... I mean, and then during COVID, of course, like anti-landlord feeling could not be more, could not be more current. Um, but, you know, it really does tap into this idea we have that there's just something kind of unseemly about making your money from from own, having bought the right parcel of land or having a parent who bought the right parcel of land. It almost seems like a real equitable tax structure. You should have to be able to prove that you bought something because you were smart. Yeah. Whether it's a stock or a building. Like when I'm, when I'm driving, for example, I am happy to let people over um, who are in the wrong lane by chance. But man, if I feel like somebody was in the wrong lane because they were trying to game the system, they were scamming. They don't get to come over. You know, in my case, I would happily cede uh, my equity in my home if um, the music consumer had not file shared the music business out of existence. Right? I mean, like the the fairness of my business, which is to make a thing and sell it. Um, like the public or the, the, the popular wisdom became that music should be free. You became a public good without getting a vote. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so, you know, so the equity I have in my home, although not the product of, I mean, the product of this kind of crazy real estate market, like on the other hand, buy my records. (laughs) At the beginning of file sharing, I remember my local crappy mall record store shutting down. It was a, a warehouse or something. Yeah. And I remember them just putting a handwritten sign on the door that said close due to Napster. You know, close because you all pirated music on Napster or something. <laughs> I think it would be funny if you did the same thing. Like on Halloween, you just put up a sign on your door that says no trick or treating candy due to Napster. <laughs> Home taping is killing music. Home taping is killing candy corn. <laughs> and that concludes single taxers. Entry 1164.LV2716. Certificate number 41467 in the omnibus. Futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, maybe that is where your equity lies. Depending on how many followers you have in social media, that's how you should be taxed. And that will pay for what? Uh, 
the <laughs> yeah, what are the goods? All the counseling that you need from spending any time on social media. There is no. I mean, that's the thing, right? Or if what is what is the next idea of real estate? I mean, we already pay a lot of money for URLs. If you you know if you didn't own KenJennings.com, how much would you pay? I don't own KenJennings.com. It's oh, not for, right. It's, it's not, that real it's, estate it's agent. It's not or for sale right? at any price. Yeah. Who, who who owns KenJennings.com? Some guy in Florida. Oh, I mean, some guy. His name is Ken Jennings. Right. <laughs> which I hate. <laughs> How dare he? I feel like NFTs are the new virtual real estate. You just need to, we need to find out some way. I mean, then that's, that's what's driving a lot of this crypto economies. It's all Peter Thiel style weirdos who want a tax shelter. Yeah. They want, they want an untaxable asset. Is it too late for me to NFT my records? It is, right? Because they're already in the public. You can just, maybe I could NFT the... Well, I'll just NFT all my unreleased jamming tracks. Uh, I'll Wu Tang them. Can NFTs be audio? Yeah, it can't. It's not. Well, it, think about that Wu Tang record that got sold to that uh, that Ding Dong Pharma bro. That was. But I thought it was like a, a physical artifact that he got. Well, it was. Can I you? Mean, se- I could. I could put them on a CD. <laughs> <laughs> you could sell an NFT that's like a picture of your uh, lyrics or something. Yeah. Okay. What about an NFT that's just a picture of me? I'll go for billions. One billion dollars. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick. You can email us at the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. You can find other like-minded people at the Futurelings Facebook page, as well as other Futurelings groups. Uh, seek them out. They're not weird at all. What's the nicest thing we can say about them? <laughs> you can support the show directly at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Uh, you can send us mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Send us the deed to your parents' farm. If you feel guilty about inheriting it without having done anything. <laughs> we'll let you keep the farmhouse. Yeah, send it to us. But the unimproved land value goes into a community trust. Yeah, we'll put it in us. a community trust called the Omnibus Trust LLC. It's the Roderick and Jennings' Kids College Fund. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.